0: The scripture reading for this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Let's go before
1: the Lord and pray. Lord Jesus, the words of that song are true, that all we have is Christ. Christ. As a preacher, Lord, all I have is Christ. I have no wisdom of my own. I have no power of my own. I have no passion of my own. I don't even have a life of my own. My eyes are owed to Christ. My ears are owed to Christ. My heart is owed to Christ. My mouth is owed to Christ. My mind is owed to Christ. All I have is Christ. And Father, as listeners, including me, Father, as listeners to your Word, all we have is Christ. We owe you our everything, our ability to hear, to perceive, to understand, to care, to see, to have passion, to want to apply your word, to want to be faithful children and passionate repenters. Oh Lord, all we have is Christ, but in saying all we have is Christ, we've said a lot. We have everything in you, Father, so please come. Please teach us now the beauty of dependence. Teach us the beauty of childlikeness. Give me the freedom of a child as I preach and give us all the freedom of a child as we listen to the word. May we be eager to hear what our Father has to say. May we we be eager to understand and obey. And Jesus, I pray that as your word infiltrates the hearts and lives of your people, I pray that you'd bear much fruit, and I pray that you'd gain much glory for your name. I pray that you'd build up your church. I pray that you'd bless this city. I pray that you'd bless the cities around it. I pray that you bless the nations, Lord. I pray, Lord, you're a great God, and I pray that you would do great things. And by faith, I give you my thanks for what you'll do. In Jesus' mighty and merciful and matchless name, we pray, amen. Samuel, as you know, was just a young boy. But in as much as he could understand, he was ministering to the Lord under the tutelage of Eli. And I think the order is very important there. He was not ministering to Eli, he was ministering to the Lord under the tutelage of Eli. And this was a very good thing. This was a hopeful thing, especially in light of what had been happening with Eli and his sons. But in those days, the Bible tells us, the word of the Lord was rare. Compromise had filled the house of the Lord and this led to silence from the Lord. Compromise had filled the house of the Lord and that compromise led to silence from the Lord. God's appointed leaders had refused and refused and refused to listen to him and so God refused to speak. God's leaders had refused and refused and refused to receive the offers of grace that he mercifully gave to them. And so at some point, God had to turn against them. Beloved, God came to the place where he actually refused to speak to his people, and he was right to do that. Why should God keep adding words to his words when people will not obey his words? when people will not listen to his words, when people will not cherish his words? Why should God add words upon words when the very leaders of his house are treating the pure gold of his speech like it's dung, like it's trash, like it's worth nothing? Beloved, there was a famine in the land of Israel. It was a famine of the word of God and it was deadly serious. Now, you might not think that silence from God is a very serious thing. You might not think that that's the most serious of famines, but I wanna suggest to you that there's not another famine in the world that's more serious than a famine of the speech of God. The Bible teaches us that we literally live by every single word that comes out of the mouth of God. We do not fundamentally live by bread and by water, by food and by drink. And that's an absolutely serious statement. Now I know that most of you at least are familiar with that saying, but I wonder if in your heart you actually believe that it's true. I wonder if I actually believe that it's true. I wonder, do we actually believe that we need the Word of God more today than we need the food and drink that we'll consume today? Do we really believe that? Do we believe that our very existence is owing to the speech of God toward us and toward the world well whatever we actually believe the truth of the matter is that god brings about his will through his speech and so existence is absolutely dependent upon his word when god said let there be light there was light and if god had not spoken there would not have been light Because God is still saying, let there be light, there is light in this room today. And should God withdraw or reverse his speech, beloved, light would cease to exist and the universe would evaporate. We owe our existence to the speech of God. And when God stops speaking, we're in great danger. We're in great trouble. And think about it at a relational level. The speech of God is the primary way by which we come to know God and learn to love God and follow God and walk in the will and ways of God. And how will we ever know the Lord if he refuses to speak to us? How can we possibly know who he is if he won't tell us who he is? How can we possibly know his will and his ways if he will not reveal his will and his ways through his speech? How can we possibly grow in him and walk with him and talk with him and have joy in him if he refuses to talk? Beloved, the famine of the word of God is deadly serious. It is relationally devastating. Can you imagine what your life would be like if the authority of figures in your life decided to stop speaking to you completely out of frustration with you? They just decided to stop speaking to you. For those of you who have living parents and grandparents, can you imagine what your life would be like if your mom and dad said to you that we're so frustrated with you that we're actually not going to talk to you anymore until things change? Can you imagine an absolute famine of speech from your parents? How would you grow in love for them? How would you grow in fellowship with them? How would you ever work through the problems in your family if there was no speech inside your family? Have you ever experienced the power of the silent treatment? It's probably the worst kind of thing that there is in a relationship. And sometimes the silent treatment is given for rightful reasons. Or how about at school? What would it be like if you went to school and you were there to learn, you're there to grow, you're there to advance in a career and your teachers, out of frustration with you, refuse to speak with you? How could you possibly learn your subject if your teachers will not speak How could you advance in your life if your teachers wouldn't speak? Or how about at work? For those of you who have bosses, just draw them to mind right now. What if your boss decided to stop speaking to you because he's so frustrated with you or because she is so frustrated with you? And for whatever reason, they decide not to fire you. They're going to keep you along, but they're not going to speak to you. What would that be like? How would your morning go? How would you know what to do? How would you know what to accomplish? How would you know to play your part in the team? What would life be like at work if your superiors would not use speech? They would not use words. Beloved, I wanna suggest to you that if the relational speech in our lives evaporated, we would be in grave trouble. And the most serious of uh, relational evaporations, if you will, is when God refuses to speak to his people. The problem is as serious as serious can possibly be. And in the days of Eli and Samuel, this is exactly what happened, and God was absolutely right to do so. He had been patient year upon year, decade upon decade, and now he said there will be a verbal famine. I am done speaking with you unless it's absolutely necessary. Now, as for Eli the priest, he was aging and he was beginning to go blind. I don't think he was completely blind at this point. Later, we'll see that he was, but now I don't think he was. But he was heading in that direction. And so he appointed Samuel as a sort of personal assistant, if you will. He kept Samuel close to him at all times. On some particular night, Eli and Samuel were taking their rest in the house of the Lord, or at least in the courts of the Lord. And the lamp of the Lord had not yet gone out. And all that means is that the sun had not risen and darkness covered the whole land. Now in this story, issues of darkness and light are very important. I think that the author is deliberately painting pictures for us, first of all, because it happened this way, but second of all, because God was using these things as a metaphor. So please draw the picture in your mind. Eli and Samuel are taking their rest. They're sleeping somewhere in the courts of the Lord. The sun is not risen and darkness is all over the land. Darkness is all over the earth. This is not an insignificant detail in the story. Because Samuel had a special job, he was sleeping, as I said, near to Eli, but more importantly, he was sleeping near the place where God promised to manifest his glory. He was sleeping near the Ark of the Covenant there. He was sleeping in the most sacred place on the earth. And in God's time and in his way, he was about to begin speaking to his people again. While Samuel lies sleeping, he awoke to the clear sound of a voice calling out his name. Sometimes I've woken up thinking someone was talking. Maybe you have too. But this time, Samuel woke up knowing that somebody was talking. And so as an obedient young man, he got himself together. He runs into his mentor's room and he says to Eli, here I am, you called for me. What an obedient little young man, huh? What a responsive, sensitive young man. Well, this wakes Eli up and he's probably a little bit confused and he says, Samuel, I I wasn't the one who called you, so just go back to bed, son, and get some sleep. And Samuel does that in obedience to his mentor and he falls asleep again and soon enough the voice calls out again, Samuel, wakes him up. And we can't blame him for thinking it was Eli, there was nobody else in in the area. So he runs into Eli's room again and he says, Eli, here I am, you called for me. And Eli just says a second time, he's probably confused and a little bit uh, annoyed at this point, (laughs) says, son, I did not call you. Please, I'm begging you, please go back to bed. At least that's what I would have said. I really need my seven or eight hours sleep. I would have said, Samuel, let's talk about these things later. And that's what Eli did to him. And so at this point, uh, Samuel goes back to his room and lays down again. But at this point of the story, the author tells us a very important detail. And that detail is that at this moment, Samuel actually did not know the Lord. That's very important. Do you remember that same detail was there in the story last week where we found out that Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, did not know the Lord? But these are very different situations. Hophni and Phinehas were older. They were functioning priests. They were completely culpable in their ignorance of God. They were in rebellion against God. They were actually acting in hateful violence toward God and toward his people. But Samuel, the case was very different. It's just the issue that he was a young boy and he did not yet know the Lord. He had grown up with believing parents. His father and his mother, Elkanah and Hannah, were amazing people. And in the short time that he lived with them, they invested all of their heart and soul into this young boy. They taught him to love the Lord. Then he grew up in the courts of the Lord with Eli as his, as his mentor. He had the high priest of Israel, the most holy man in the land, as his personal mentor. And surely, even though Eli was compromised, he tried to show Samuel the way of the Lord. Samuel grew up around the things of God. He grew up in the service of God. But somehow he had not entered into a personal relationship with the Lord. He knew lots of facts about him, but he did not actually know him. And I think that this is a very important lesson for us. It's an important point of understanding for us. Knowing God is not about being born into the right family or into the right culture. Isn't that right? Knowing God is not about being born at the right time or into the right circumstances or being given a certain job. Knowing God is not equal to knowing things about God. You can know things about a person and never know a person, right? Knowing God is not even about serving in the very house of God. Knowing God is about entering into a personal, face-to-face, intimate relationship with the one who created us in our mother's wombs. Knowing God is about crossing over that line so that you have a growing consciousness of the existence of God and the near presence of God. Now, whether we believe or not, God exists. Isn't that right? Our belief does not affect God's existence or lack of existence. But the issue about knowing God is that we have to come to realize that he is real and we have to come to realize that he is near. And Samuel hadn't quite crossed that line. Parents, I think that most of us know that this is true, but I think we do well to contemplate it because I think we probably have a temptation as parents to think that our job is actually to teach our kids about the things of God, that we're to teach them about the Bible, we're to teach them about theology, we're to teach them about the church, we're to teach them about service, we're to teach them about prayer and about mission and many other things like that. And we would do well to teach our kids all of these things, of course. But please hear me when I say that the heart of our job as parents is to lead our kids to the heart of God. The heart of our job as parents is to help our kids come to a place where they can have a personal relationship with Him. And maybe they will, maybe they won't. It's actually not our responsibility to make them believe Our responsibility is simply to shepherd them to see child, son, daughter, you must know God, you must love God, you must enter into a relationship with God. Beloved, the heart of our job as parents is to guide our kids to the heart of God. If we teach our kids the things of God without teaching them the heart of God, all we do is create Pharisees and not true believers. All we do is create legalists and not lovers of God, right? All we do is end up creating little self-righteous judges rather than gracious, merciful, joy-producing children of God and servants of the Most High. We have to teach our kids to know God. While we're talking to them about the things of God, let us never forget to help them relate to God as a person. Let us help them to walk with Him and talk with Him and listen to Him and pray with Him. Let us teach our kids to love the heart of God. Now, kids... And teenagers, maybe the things I've been saying make sense to you. Maybe they don't make a lot of sense to you. But I wanna say to you this morning that God is alive, God is real, and God wants to be in an actual relationship with each one of you. But you should not think that because your parents believe that you'll automatically have a relationship with God. And kids, you should not think that because you're growing up in a church like this that you'll automatically have a relationship with God. You have to seek God for yourself. You have to ask God to come into your life, to be part of your life. You have to ask him, show yourself to me, God. God is gracious. He wants a relationship with you and he will do that. He might not, like Samuel, talk to you out loud in your bedroom and maybe you should be thankful for that because I think that would be a little bit scary. But somehow or other, God will reveal himself to you. And children, I want to encourage you, call out to the Lord. Seek to have a relationship with the Lord. My lovely wife, came to know Jesus at seven years old and she had a real vital relationship with the Lord from that day to this day. She never had a time in her life where she dipped and rebelled and all of that stuff. Some people have gone through that, but not Kimmy. God grabbed her heart at seven years old and has kept her heart to this day and that could be your story too. But just know that this church is not enough. You need to call out to the Lord and if the Lord reveals himself to you, then you be faithful to talk to your parents about what God has done. And you come, talk to your pastors about what God has done, and we will rejoice with you and help you know what it means to actually love the Lord and not just be around the things of the Lord. Now, as for Samuel, he went back to bed, and he was lying down again. And for a third time, God faithfully called out to him, Samuel. And Samuel again faithfully ran into Eli's room and said, here I am, sir. You called me. Here I am. Now, Eli was a compromised priest, but he did still have a sensitivity to the Lord. So the third time was a charm for him, and he realized that something more was going on here. He realized that the boy is probably not dreaming. He realized that God probably was stirring, and so he said, son, do this. Please go back to bed and lay down. And if the voice comes again, this time, don't come to me, but this time say, Lord, speak, for your servant is hearing. And so young Samuel, again, did exactly what his mentor told him to do. He went back to bed. He was probably a little bit nervous. He was probably even a little bit scared. But eventually he fell back to sleep and and then eventually here came the voice again. Samuel, Samuel. And this time he called back and said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. God knew, I think, more than just in in a practical sort of way. I think God knew Samuel's heart. God knew that he had Samuel's attention. And so it really amazes me that the Lord wasted no time with introductions or niceties or anything like that. No small talk here. He took this young boy and he just got straight to the point and he spoke an extremely heavy word to Samuel about Eli and about his family and about their destiny. And if you look with me at verse 11, let's please just read exactly what the Lord had to say to him. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And he's referring there to the prophecy spoken at the end of chapter two. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house for how long? Forever. For the iniquity that he knew Because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. I wanna pause there for a second because I think it's important that we get the picture here. Eli was probably not complicit in the things that his sons were doing. You'll remember they were stealing offerings and they were sexually abusing young women in the temple complex. I don't think Eli was directly involved in what they were doing. The problem with Eli is that he knew what was happening and he passively let it happen. Or if I could put it in a different way, which I'll show you more in more detail next week, Samuel feared men and women more than he feared God. Samuel, or Eli, Eli feared the consequences of confronting his sons more than he feared what would happen if he did not confront his sons. And so he let this horrible, treacherous behavior take place right inside the house of God, and God held him accountable. Believe me, his sons were going to pay their own price. But ultimately speaking, Eli was the one in power. Eli was the one in control. Eli was the one who had authority. He was the one who had the calling. He was the one who had the responsibility. He was the one who was supposed to rise up and say, no more, we will not behave like this in the house of God and you can kill me if you want to, but I will spill my blood until this stops. That's what he should have done. But instead, he was passive and now God said, I'm gonna hold you to account and there's nothing you can do about it. So look at verse 14, just one more verse we'll read. Therefore, the Lord says, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or by offering forever. Whew, those are words I never want spoken of me. Those are amazingly powerful, soul shaking words, beloved. This was a harsh and serious word from God. It was irreversible, it was inescapable. And history itself has shown us that it was not escaped. But as I said last week, this word from God, as harsh as it was, was actually a word of mercy because God was trying to clean out his house so that he could create a safe, holy, God-exalting place for his people. He came against his leaders because he was for his name and for his people. And so even though this word was strong, even though it was harsh indeed, This word was like a lightning storm that goes across the desert and strikes and strikes and strikes and shakes the earth and shakes all the houses on the earth, but it also signals the end of a famine. God had not spoken in a very long time, and now he spoke with thunderous words. But, beloved, at the end of the day, this was good news because God was speaking again. And soon we'll see that the flood of his speech would come again. Beloved, this word was actually good news cloaked in an ear-tingling rebuke. This was actually a sign of God's faithfulness to his people. It was a sign of God's mercy toward his people. And we would do well to learn from this. When God disciplines us, he's treating us as his children. He's treating us as his own. And the Bible actually says, if you're not disciplined by God, you do not belong to God. So if you receive a harsh word from the Lord, just know that there's actually hope embedded in it in some way, shape, or form. God is inalterably committed to his own purposes and his own promises and his own plans, and he will do whatever he has to do to fulfill those things for the glory of his own name primarily, but then also for the good of his people. Now, the author doesn't tell us how Samuel responded to the Lord when he received this word. I would have liked to hear, like, what did this feel like for this little boy? But the, the author just passed right by that. And he just said that in the morning when Samuel woke up, he went to the house of the Lord and he opened up the doors to the house of the Lord. And I must say that I don't think that these are, are peripheral details. I, I think they're, they're moving images for us that God wants us to see. God had finally spoken in the midst of the darkness. But now the famine had come to an end. The sun had risen, the light was shining on the land, and the doors of the house of the Lord had been opened by a young man who would soon be a prophet. This humble little boy was being used by God and hope was rising for the people of God and joy was being stored up for the people of God, though they couldn't see it at the moment. The sun had risen, beloved, not just in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. This was truly a monumental morning. This was a before and after morning in the nation of Israel. But Samuel himself was scared. And what he was scared about was he feared he was gonna have to tell Eli what God had just said to him. And I don't know about you, but if I was in Samuel's shoes, I would not wanna have to look at the high priest in the face and say this kind of thing to him. I would not want to do that. And sure enough, when Eli woke up, and when he got his wits about him and was ready for conversation, the first thing he did was make a beeline for Samuel and press him to tell him everything that God had said. I think Eli had an instinct that this word was about him. I think Eli had an instinct that this word was very serious. Now we don't have time to look at the details, but just know in your minds that but from the end of chapter two to the beginning of chapter three, there's a transition in stories there and time very likely passed between the end of chapter two and the end of chapter three. So the very end of chapter two is a strong rebuke to Levi, then quite a bit of time passes and now this story with the young boy Samuel. I think that probably what happened is that in the passage of time, Eli began to wonder if God's wrath had turned back to mercy And if maybe the Lord would relent from the word that he had spoken. Or on the other hand, would God push forward? Would God do everything that he had already said that he would do? What was God's will? What was God's mind? God had refused to speak and refused to speak and refused to speak and now he had spoken and Eli was trembling in wonder of what God would say. And so in verse 13, he pressed Samuel with some pretty strong words. He said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So being under the conviction of the Spirit, the calling of the Spirit, and being under the direct command and threat of his mentor, Samuel faithfully told Eli everything that the Lord had said and he held nothing back, beloved. This was a courageous young man. Encouraged not in the sense of a lack of fear, but courage in the sense of a willingness to obey God in the face of possible disaster. Who knew what Eli would do to Samuel when he spoke this word, right? You have to understand, Israel did not have a king in these days. Eli was the most militarily powerful man in Israel. Who knows what would have happened, but Samuel in faith pressed on, and I think that he serves as a model for all of us here. This isn't going to happen to every person in this room, and it certainly won't happen to us every day. But the time may come where God gives some of us a very hard assignment and sends us to do it. The time may come where God gives us a very hard word to speak and sends us to speak it, and we have to make a choice. Will we fear God or will we fear people? I can testify to you that hundreds of times, right here in this pulpit, I have had to make this decision. Will I preach the word of God for what it is or will I shrink back to help the people feel comfortable? What will I do? And by the way, another decision I've had to make is will I receive the discomfort of the word of God into my own heart or will I just seek to sort of put icing on the cake and make it easier to swallow and to make it feel better? And maybe some of you will receive a word from God that you just simply have to speak. If that is you, I have two things to say. One is, remember Samuel Remember that he was a childlike, he was a child, so of course he was childlike, but in his heart he was childlike. He trusted in God more than he feared other people and he just walked forward and did what God asked him to do. I really admire him for that. I really admire him for that. So remember Samuel and trust the Lord. Do the assignment God has given you to do. The other thing I do want to say, though, is that the rules have changed a little bit in New Testament times with regard to receiving a word for somebody and delivering that word to somebody. Today, the rule is from 1 Corinthians 14, that the spirit of a prophet must be subject to prophets. Prophets. And what I think that means is that if you sense you have a word from God for somebody, you are now required to test that word. The days of a prophet coming into a room like this and saying, thus says the Lord, in a way that nobody can speak back, those days are over. And now if a person has a prophetic word, they're free to speak that word, but they must test it uh, along with people who have a similar gift to theirs. So I do wanna encourage you, if God speaks to you, take that seriously, but also give him and give other people room to test it. Give, give people room to see, is this really from the Lord or is this from the flesh or is this from some evil source? But if it's tested and found to be true, brothers and sisters, trust the Lord. Push past the fear and trust your God. I cannot tell you how many times I've had a hard word to speak, whether like in this pulpit or sometimes just even a positive word, speaking the gospel. Have you ever been in a situation where you had a chance to tell somebody about Jesus and you're just gripped with fear? But you decide, at least on that occasion, to walk through the fear, and thanks be to God, he did amazing things. It's happened to me several times over the summer. But God is faithful, beloved. He can be trusted. So if you are given a tough assignment, remember Samuel. Bow your heart to God in childlike faith and just do what it is that God has given you to do. Now, as for Eli he was in a mild state of shock, I'm sure. For now he knew for sure that God would do everything he had threatened to do and there would be no way of escape. Eli absolutely knew it. And so his only response was this. He said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. He is God who can oppose God. Let him do what seems wise in his eyes. Now, I wanna process this with you. Maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't. But I feel like while Eli's words seem humble, there's actually quite a bit of arrogance going on with Eli here. And what I mean is that all he said was, it's the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. He didn't take any actions to repent. Why doesn't he rip his clothes to pieces? Why doesn't he fling dust in the air? Why doesn't he get on his knees and cry his eyes out? Why doesn't he confess his sins in specific ways? Why doesn't he gather his troops and order them to stop his boys and to stop those who were colluding with him? Why doesn't he repent? Why is he so passive? Why is he just sitting back and letting evil have its course, beloved? Arrogance doesn't always look arrogant. Sometimes arrogance looks very humble, but beloved, passivity is a massive arrogance. It's a massive arrogance against God. It's a massive arrogance against his people. Eli was destroying the house of God by taking no action at the word of God, beloved. Now I think, obviously, we have to leave his ultimate judgment to God. We're not his judge, and thank God for that, amen? So grateful that I'm not the judge of any soul on earth. So let God judge him ultimately. But I think that we can say this, we should not emulate Eli in his passivity, we should not. If the Lord should speak to us, if he should bring even a small sin to our minds, we should be sensitive and we should be passionate repenters. That's the word, the term that I thought of as I was developing the message and Microsoft Word kept telling me that repenters is not a word, but I'm gonna say it's a word. I'm gonna turn it into a verb and turn it into an us thing. Let's be passionate repenters. Let's do this. Let's listen to the Lord and have sensitive hearts before the Lord and when he speaks, let us act. Let us take him seriously, beloved. He is for us. He only calls us to repent because he has higher joys for us. So let us not be like Eli. Let us be passionate to repent. The Bible says that he and his sons treated the offerings of the Lord with contempt. Part of their contempt is that they stole the offerings and personally benefited from what was not for them. They stole from God. Another part of the contempt of the word of the Lord, though, is to hear his clear rebuke, his clear call to repentance and ignore it. That is also treating the offering of God with contempt. The offering of God says, your sins can be forgiven and the way is opened wide for you to walk with God. And when we say, no, thank you, even in a passive, seemingly humble voice, beloved, it is great contempt. Please keep your finger here in 1 Samuel and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. I wanna show you that this idea is not just in the Old Testament, but it's a clear call from the New Testament and it's a serious call that we not treat the offering of God with contempt. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. Hebrews ten twenty-six. For if we go on sinning deliberately, and I take that to mean as a pattern of life, not just a sort of a one-off thing where you're struggling for holiness, but you're, you've given in to patterns of sin. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but what? A fearful expectation of judgment, just like Eli, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, and we'll actually see that next week. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. In other words, not the blood of bulls and goats, but the most precious blood in the universe. And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Beloved, Jesus literally gave his all for us. He was the only possible sufficient sacrifice and he willingly became that sacrifice for us. Through the sacrifice of himself, he offers us eternal life and all the benefits that go with it. Benefits that are beyond what we could ever imagine. Joys that are beyond what we could ever imagine. Fruitfulness beyond what we could ever imagine. And you'll see someday, when you see Jesus face to face, you'll see that I am not exaggerating. Life in Christ is beyond our imagination. He gives us the gift of himself so that he can give us the gift of eternal life and all that goes along with it. And far be it from us to treat him with contempt. He comes to us. He reveals us to ourselves. He rebukes us. He calls us to repentance. He woos us because he loves us. Because he wants what is best for us. If you saw your children Driving a car a hundred miles an hour right toward a brick wall, a thick, tall brick wall, wouldn't you do everything you could to stop them? Wouldn't you rebuke them in any way you had to rebuke them? That's the heart of God. He rebukes us to save us from destroying ourselves. So let us not treat the offering of God with contempt. When he comes and reveals our heart to us, when he comes and reveals our sin to us, let us not be like Eli. Let us not be passive people. Let us be passionate repenters because it is for our good. It is for the glory of God and for our good and then actually for the blessing of other people. The healing of God frees us up to be used by God in the world. There's just so much at stake. So again, I pray, I beg you, join me in the quest to be a passionate repenter and not a passive recipient of the word of God. Eli, sat in passivity awaiting the judgment of God. And while that was happening, the Bible says to us at the end of chapter three that Samuel was growing in stature, he was growing in wisdom, he was growing in favor. In fact, God took this little boy who was a faithful little young servant in the house of the Lord, and eventually, over time, you can see at the end of chapter three, like a lot of time passes, because over time, Samuel became a prophet over the entire people of the Lord. And I love the imagery that's used. It says that God did not let any of his words fall to the ground. He did not let them be meaningless. But God used all of his words. He confirmed and established and strengthened his words. He made him a prophet from Dan to Beersheba, which is like saying from Minnesota to Texas or something like that. From the top of the country to the bottom of the country. Everybody knew Samuel. Everybody respected Samuel. Everybody acknowledged that Samuel was a prophet. And while this does mean that we should have a certain admiration for our brother now in Christ, it's accurate to say that of him, we should have a, a kind of admiration for him. Beloved, there's a bigger thing going on here that's not about Samuel. The bigger thing is that there had been a massive famine of the Word of God in the lives of the people of God, but now the Lord began to speak and to speak and to speak and to speak. The famine had turned into a feast. And he used Samuel, but the focus is really on the Lord. And I am just so moved when I think about this, beloved. It does not matter how wayward God's people get. He might rebuke us. He might do anything he has to do to straighten us out. But one way or the other, he will accomplish his purposes. He will fulfill his promises because God is faithful. Faithful. I know you've heard me say that a thousand times. If God gives me life, you'll hear me say it 10,000 more times. I want that on my gravestone. God is faithful. That's what this is about, beloved. This is not about Samuel. This is about an immensely merciful God who is blessing his people. And next week we'll see that they still had some very dark things to go through, but God was for them and God was working in their midst. Now as for us, Perhaps as we've talked about these things, the Lord has brought some specific sins to your mind or specific patterns of sin. I wanna close this morning by giving us a little bit of time to think about that. I'm gonna ask that we stay seated during the last song this morning. We'll let the worship team come up and just sing for us and feel free to sing along with them. But mainly as we're singing, I wanna encourage you to just let the Lord reveal your heart to you. And even if he just brings a little sin to mind, that's okay. Just learn to be responsive to him. Learn to be uh, reactive to him. Learn to be passionate about what God calls you to do. At the end of the men's retreat uh, yesterday, we took just a few minutes to talk about what are a couple things that God might have you do when you get home. And I felt as I prayed that God would have me do, at least for now, two specific things. And I'll leave the specifics of those to another time, but I want to say that already, as I've come home, the Spirit of God has helped me to already begin taking steps toward those things because I don't want to be passive. I want to be passionate, and I'm asking you to join me in that. So worship team, if you'll come now, and let me just open us up with prayer, and let's stay seated this time and bow our hearts before the Lord and let him have his way in us. Our Father, we're so grateful for your word We're so grateful for your willingness to speak to us. We're so grateful, Father, for your willingness to speak hard things to us because you're for us. And we're so grateful that you are for us. We're so grateful that you sent Jesus Christ, your only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We're so grateful that whoever looks to Jesus Christ and confesses their sins that you will forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, we're so grateful that you've made a way for us to be in a vital relationship with you. And I pray that you'd come now and do that kind of work among us. And I thank you, our Father, for what you'll do. In Jesus' great and gracious name we pray, amen.